At Kelly Companies, it is no secret that they believe in the power of people. In an effort to help their Keelians get to know each other a little bit better, they decided to launch the Who Do You Know campaign. The goal was simple. Keelians were encouraged to have a conversation with someone outside of their circle. That's it. These conversations, however, have brought people together and farthered their world-class culture. Shout out to the Keelians who have made an effort to have meaningful conversations with new friends. You can learn more about those conversations, about those amazing friends, by visiting them online at Keely Companies. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. You are in for a treat today. Here we go, man. Today's guest turned a simple idea and an outrageous dream into a cultural phenomenon. As a 20-something waiting tables, Rob Angel began his adventure in creating the remarkably successful and the beloved board game. You ready for it? Pictionary. That's right. We've got the creator of Pictionary joining us today, beating industry giants such as Milton Bradley and Mattel at their own game. Rob led Pictionary to selling a staggering 38 million board games in more than 60 different countries. Today, Rob shares how his intuition, his passion, and his persistence led to creating the legendary game and how his unconventional tactics not only led to his unexpected success, but how it can do the same for you in the game of life that you're playing. And yet, and yet, my friends, you know that's coming. And yet, this conversation is so much more than Pictionary being one of the best-selling board games of all time. That's part of it. Today's conversation is a roadmap to finding success and living it out loud on your own terms. It's about the power of shutting your eyes and taking that first step in faith. It's about embracing the challenges that lie ahead and the truth that the real game isn't about the courage to be an artist. It's about the audacity to joyfully simply play the game with your team. So here we go, artists and leaders and fellow board game enthusiasts. I encourage you right now to grab your favorite beverage, take a seat in your favorite comfy chair, Pull out your favorite board game and welcome to the table, my friend, and soon to be yours. His name is Rob Angel. Rob, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Hey, John. Thanks for having me, man. What our listeners don't know is usually the guests and I pop on a little bit early. We talk for a little while. We get to know each other and it sets the tone for the entire conversation. And with this conversation today and with you, I feel like I'm already on with a friend. So for those who haven't yet made you as an acquaintance or as a friend, or they haven't yet checked out Wikipedia or read your book, and if they were to meet you for the very first time and they said, Rob, tell me about you, man. What would you say about you? My name's Rob. I'm a Gemini. Uh, <laughs> I actually do lead with that sometimes. No, I'm just Rob. I'm just Rob. I'm just a guy who's having a great life, having fun, enjoying what I'm doing or enjoying what I'm not doing. 
and just and, and embracing everything that I can. I think one of my strong suits is I'm always curious. I'm always mm -hmm. trying new things, doing new things. Uh, my kids think daddy's a little nuts, but uh, but I'm always doing something new. I'm an explorer. I was asked watching an interview recently between Warren Buffett and Bill Gates, and they were asked separately what characteristic defined and led them to the success they ultimately achieved. And they both separately, and then we're surprised to hear about one another. The trait was curiosity. Oh, right. Really? Okay. Did you view yourself as a curious kid? Like, did you know even back then, like, man, I see the world through a question mark, and most of my friends don't. Yeah, I'm I'm always in motion. And that fuels my curiosity. You never know which comes first. Am I curious and then go search? Or am I just searching and the curiosity kind of kind of happens? But I've always been that way. Uh, always been. I'll, I'll say my own person, right? I've always known who I was, uh, but I'm always just running around. And so, yeah, forever. So it's not, I didn't learn it later in life, just an extension of me. You grew up in Washington, great community, kids everywhere, a lot of time playing outside, but occasionally you'd sneak inside and you'd play some board games. You and I, I think if I did the recon right, share a love of our, our favorite game growing up. What was your favorite board game growing up? Risk. For sure. What was your approach? Which which nation or a continent <laughs> would you try to approach to take over the entire world? Forget Asia. You go for uh, Australia. You get those two. <laughs> you got that one. North America was a little more tricky. And so if I could go for South America, because there was only two entry points, that would be my uh, that'd be always my first. Asia was a, a mistake to try. It's so tempting, though. Those seven points run out of are awfully tempting. Well, if you wind up getting four on the draw, then you you got to try. <laughs> uh, for So for the Risk fans in the room, you know what I'm talking about right now. It's a great game, but we're not here to talk about Risk. We're here to talk about Pictionary and about <laughs> life and about the creator of it. So let's go deeper down that path. You played board games, but you also played sports. You're a, a champion pole vaulter. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's one thing to be a basketball player or a marathon runner. Pole vaulting seems like a risky sport to say, yeah, I'll try that. I was competitive and one of my friends was a pole vaulter and I go, I could beat him. So I dedicated my, he ran a bunch of events, but I, I dedicated myself to being the best at pole vaulting. And so I focused on that. The one sport, we had an indoor pit in Spokane, so I didn't have to practice in the rain. But because of that focus, I became pretty good at it. And that was, you know, that was my claim to fame sports-wise. Business-wise, at least as a young person, the path that you imagined for yourself was the path your dad laid out for himself and modeled for you. Yep. And at 18, that path for him changed, which also meant it changed for you as well. Tell me that story. Yeah, like a lot of kids, I, you know, growing up, I watched my dad with reverence and he was an executive and he was in the big office. And I thought that was really cool. And so while I didn't necessarily have an affinity for business, I just wanted to be like dad. I was going to go to college and I was a businessman and I always worked hard. I always had a job. And so when I get to college, I was in the middle of my second year and I'm taking all these business courses, even though at this time... They really weren't what I wanted to do, but I was kind of, you know, committed, if you will. And I was failing. I mean, my grades sucked. And my dad gets fired halfway through my sophomore year. Now, a lot of dads get fired, but my dream is to be him. And my dream is not to get fired, for goodness sakes, and have somebody else able to fire me. 
And so this whole curiosity thing that we talked about earlier, I go, well, I'm never going to work for anybody else. Now everybody's an entrepreneur. Back then it was, I'm just going to be my own boss, right? When he got fired, would in the moment, honestly, it was the worst thing I thought could ever happen. Who's going to pay for school, blah, 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 was ultimately the best thing. <laughs> ultimately the best thing that ever happened to me because it forced me to really evaluate myself. I go, what do I want to do? What do I want to be? And that's what, that was the uh, turning point, the first big turning, turning point in my life. Yeah. And the responsibility of not only figuring out what you want to do, but being the one getting you toward that, you had to put yourself now through school. And I want to walk through a few of the jobs that you had both in school and then shortly after. Sure. And as we go through these, rather than saying, so what was your job there? Tell me what you learned by doing that work. Okay. So scooping ice cream. Oh, I learned I could humble myself. It was terrible. I mean, I was the only guy to ever scoop ice cream at the campus cafeteria on Saturday nights, because that's the only job they had. I said, I'll take it. I got to eat. And it had darts, right? So for girls, they never had a boy do it. And so I'm there and the comments and the conversations. So yeah, I learned humility and how to be humble myself to get my job accomplished. <laughs> Mission accomplished. So I've you never been asked that question. That's a great question. It, well, it's a great job. And I assumed it brought about soreness in your right hand from scooping, but also uh, humility, hard work, and probably you, you, you met a few girls along the way as well. It was college. Of course I did. This job is awesome. Selling vacuums door to door. Oh, that was a one day job, right? And I go with this guy and he is doing the hard sell. And he is pushing his way into the door of this poor woman, not physically, but, you know, he browbeat her. And then he makes this big pitch and she's going, no, no, no. And I'm watching her, not him. And I'm going, she doesn't want this. Now, there's a difference between overcoming a no and get out of her house. I'm going, come on. And so I learned in that moment, I'm not going to be pushy. I'm not going to push something on somebody else that was a true no. I mean... You know, you can sell iced Eskimos and yes, he probably made the sale, but it wasn't for me. I wasn't going to be that guy. I'm not that guy. Probably in about five minutes, I'm going to come back to that story because I think the way you approach your ultimate career growth was a lesson that that ex experience taught you. So we'll come back to uh, selling board games in the basement of Nordstrom's mm -hmm. in a minute. Real estate. What did real estate teach you? That I wasn't good at real estate. <laughs> no, I'll take that back. What it taught me was don't do what you don't want to do. My mom was in real estate. I didn't have a job getting out of college, waiting tables. So I said, I'm going to be in real estate like mom. Again, following my dad to be a businessman, I followed my mom into real estate. And I didn't love it. I spent two years at it. I was terrible at it. So that taught, that taught me, again, follow your own dream, Rob. Don't follow somebody else's. Well, so you take that advice. Eventually. Pizza franchise. Talk about that. That was exciting for me. There was this place in Spokane, Washington, where I grew up called Pete's Pizza. And it sort of calzones. And for years, years and years and years, everybody, myself included, would spend two nights a week there. They were cheap. They were big. They were filling. And so I was going to franchise Pete's Pizza. And that was my first. I was 22, just graduated school. And I was going to be the calzone king. <laughs> but it was something I was aware of and I was familiar with. I used the product. I love the product. So I was going to try to franchise that. It was my first entrepreneurial, true entrepreneurial endeavor. Unfortunately, the mother, the wife of the owner, 
did not want to franchise. I didn't get that, but it kind of whetted my appetite to to get out there and try things. So I I learned I could you know lie because I offered him fifty grand and I had like seventeen dollars in the bank. But I figured I'd get the money later. That's a detail. Details, <laughs> details have never been my strong suit. I learned that too. Final final question around work experience, waiting tables. You did it a lot. What did waiting tables teach you? Uh, organization that I can deal with people, that I can overcome, I'll say obstacles, because, you know, if they don't have the spaghetti, somebody's going to get pissed at you. I'm a little being dramatic, but waiting tables, it was just the ultimate freedom. If I wanted more money, I'd work more shifts. If I wanted some free time, I'd have somebody cover my shift. So waiting tables was very lucrative and very perfect for the time of my life. Really good. Well, that's going to lead you to uh, an inflection point in your life. I think is your buddy's name, Sean. Yeah. You're living with Sean. You guys are hanging out. This is what you do when you're a young 20 something year old guy. And sometimes you just play games, games you just make up. And he asked you one time, do you want to play charades on paper? I think most of our listeners and viewers know what charades is. Tell me what charades on paper meant. Well, I didn't have a clue, of course. And so there was four guys in this house and it was just making, sketching words to a partner to get them to guess the word. I mean, instead of acting, you're sketching. It was deadly simple. We had four guys, two guys on one side of the table, two guys on the other side of the table. We'd whisper words to each other. There was no board, no rules, nothing. And then we'd go, go. And we just start sketching. I mean, literally, that's how Pictionary got started. And I'm watching this and I'm going, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. We're usually home at midnight, up one o'clock, waiting tables, bartending. And I just thought, this is fantastic. Everybody's involved. We're having fun. And that's when the light bulb went off at 22 years old. Maybe there's a board game in this. Maybe I could package something here and make some money at it. How quickly into charades on paper? before you realize not only is this fun, but I think this might be fun for the house next to us and the house next to them. Like there's a difference yeah. between liking something and then realizing there's a market for the thing you like. Absolutely. And we can get into it at some point about passion, right? So we all have passion for something. I had passion for playing that game with my friends. I mean, that was a blast, but I didn't have passion for making a board game and selling it and creating a business. So at that point, at 22 years old, all I thought is, this would make a good board game. That's as far as my brain took me. Mm. Not how to sell it, not how to market it, not how to produce it. There's a game here somewhere, and that's the first step. Uh, the first idea that I had was it would make a good board game, not how do I make a board game, how do I sell it? It was pretty simple in my head to begin with, the whole idea of it. Yeah, it's, it's so far from simple. I think you, you've mentioned that there's several million steps in this simple little board game. Well, in that moment, it was simple, but ultimately, yes, unbelievable amount of steps. You have this wild vision of saying, I think we can do something with this. Take me through the next step. What do you do next? You're a 22, 23-year-old kid. Now yeah. what? What do all 22-year-olds do? Nothing. I went to Europe. I kept drinking beer with my friends. I had things to do. I backpacked. So at 22, I was not mentally ready to get out of my head read, mentally or physically ready to start a game, start a company. So I did my, my life, if you will, at 22, but I couldn't get the idea out of my head. 
right? We all have those ideas that float around and, and I, I just couldn't get it out of my head. And there is this one notion that I heard from somebody else that every great idea is going to land somewhere. It's just a matter of who does it. Yeah. Right. And so Pictionary was known, Shreys on Paper was known to a lot of people. And so it took me two and a half years of what ifs. What if I don't do it? What if it's successful? What if it? I should fail? All these different thoughts are going through my head. But ultimately, the what if I don't do it and somebody else does, I will never forgive myself. And so I, I was 24 and a half, if you will, 25 by now, just moved to Seattle. And I was like, I was like, oh, how do I get started? And it was overwhelming. And there was marketing plans and business plans. And again, I'm not a detail guy. This is the story unfolds beautifully that I'm not a detail guy. <laughs> But yeah, because of my partners, but I had to get started. So I go, yeah. okay, what can I, Rob Angel, do to get this thing started? And the easiest thing for me was the word list, because I realized, you know, what am I going to sell? Right? Making a board game, fine. I still don't have the idea, but I got, I, I have to sell something that was the words. People guess differently, sketch differently, uh, laugh differently, but the words are the common denominator. So I said, I'm making a word list. I'm making the word list was easy because I had a pad of paper, a pencil, and a dictionary in the house. It's not like the first step. Sometimes people go, oh, you know, I got to, I got to go drive to the store and then I got to go do this, this, this. I was right there. It was super simple. So I didn't go overthink my first step. Went in the backyard with the dictionary and I got my paper and my pad of pen, uh, my pencil. And the first word that I read, I read every freaking word in the dictionary. <laughs> first word I, read, I know, right? Who does it? And I, I, if any of your audience has read the dictionary, I am impressed because every word. First word I saw that uh, I liked for the game was aardvark, right? So I write down the word aardvark. This was 40-something years ago, and I've told this story a thousand times, and I still, I still can remember the feeling of writing down aardvark. It was the first step. It was creation. It was, oh my God, I finally did something with this stupid idea, right? Two and a half years of, of writing of thinking about it. it, took me two and a half years to write the word aardvark. It took me 30 seconds to write the second word, which was abacus. I mean, two and a half years, 30 seconds, 29 seconds to write the third word, and then 28 seconds, because now I'm flowing, I'm flowing, right I'm flowing, down. right? And so by the time I was done with 5,018 words over three months, my mindset, I was no longer a waiter, I was a game inventor. So it took all that reinforcement day after day after day, but it was brilliant. I had a blast. Roommates thought I was a little nuts, but that's okay. Were you saying, hey guys, I, I think I'm going to do this. Who wants in? Nope. Because I didn't know what in meant, right? So we're talking again, 1984, when I started working on the word list, I didn't, I didn't have an idea for a game and a board and all these other things. So I didn't know really at first what I needed and what I wanted. But then when I finally got the word list done, now I'm going, okay, I actually do have to put a business together. I mean, I got to yeah. produce some games. Uh, Rob, the, the thing that confuses me is most businesses, there's a pathway. Pizza company, Pete's Pizza. Like, you know how to make dough and put sauce on it and then cheese and an oven and sell it. Speaking, there's a pathway. Books, there's a pathway. Right. There's almost trivia pursuit was out and risk was out, but 
the idea of cardboard boxes designed with graphics with game pieces inside and a couple thousand cards like there's no real pathway there so how do you go from having a bunch of words like aardvark into ultimately a packaged game that you can sell how how long do you have uh but i know i mean it's it's an amazing journey but but in answer to your your you know broad question is intuition and one foot in front of the other there was there was no internet now you can and i'm not sour grapes you can push a button get a prototype done and off you go right and i got that's brilliant i love that by the way but back then it was all intuition one foot in front of the other so i got the word list done and there was as you say no manual okay i got the word list done Uh, i should probably play test the game to see if anybody likes it (laughs) right maybe it was just all the beer we drank as college kids that made it fun okay i'll do that next i didn't think of anything else i didn't overlay my brain with all these other things that could happen wouldn't happen fear failure none of that was none of that okay i'm going to do a play test i did a play test it was successful now what oh you know i should probably get some partners and make a box see if see if we can do something good we did that step i did get the partners which were brilliant and the best partners ever you know we had to raise capital all the parts that still exist yeah still exist for any business today but i didn't overthink those processes until i was in the middle of them. i didn't look too far ahead which you know business course 101 says, you know, plan your exit strategy. Why did my voice go like that, by the way? <laughs> Maybe I like it. Would you please finish the rest of the interview with that voice? Uh, this question. So, you know, <laughs> you know, what's your exit strategy? Uh, but anyway, in all honesty, and this is no lie, I had more fun yeah. in those years than we were when we were hugely successful. The creativity, the as we say, curiosity, the not having a freaking clue mm. what was next, what what step was next, not even what sales were next. Just it was so much fun. It was like a I, I look at like a prairie dog. You kind of wake up in the morning and your head's swinging back and forth. What do you want to do today? I don't know, Terry. What do you want to let's go try to sell some games? Okay, no, let's let's go to the beer. But it was so much fun not knowing. What was going to happen next? So June 1, 1985, you yep. guys have been putting together by hand about a thousand board games. Is that right? So all the pieces come to your house and you assemble this by hand. Yeah. The first thousand games, all the pieces, nine companies, no internet again, yep. yellow pages, nine companies supplying parts to my apartment. And we hand assembled them. And it's, it's almost like when you write a book you feel really good about it. You're done. And then the books show up and then you realize, oh my gosh, I've got to sell this thing. It's like <laughs> it, as, as a huge an accomplishment as it is to put together a thousand board games, the reality is you've done nothing because no one knows about it. And Absolutely. I think your promotion of this thing and the passion that you brought forward and the humility that you brought forward were all things that you were you learned as a kid in those various other jobs. Absolutely. And, so and- tell us a little bit about how you took these board games from the apartment and got them into people's houses. They call it now dis, uh, uh, disruption. We called it alternative distribution back then. <laughs> so, so there was three toy stores in Seattle. And we have a game, toy and game stores. And we figure if we sell to those, what are we going to do next? We're going to have to sit with our thumbs up our butt waiting for those three stores to, to, to market them. 
And that was, there was two points, selling and marketing. So the selling part was, no, wait a minute. We're not selling a board game because by now we're, you know, a year plus in, we're understanding we didn't have a board game. We were selling fun. Yeah. Who doesn't sell fun? Everybody sells fun. So I literally put the game under my arm. I'd walk down the street and I'd see a storefront and I'd go in and I'd go, hey, I'm Rob. I'm local. Uh, you should be selling Pictionary. It was a real estate company. And they're going, what? I go, well, you know, if you have a game on the counter, when somebody looks at the house, it's a game and it's fun. Oh, good. He took six. A real estate company is my first sale. One of my first sales. And then we would do demonstrations. The bottom of the escalator, downtown Nordstrom, for 14, 12, 14 hours a day on a little table. And they let me stand there. And people would come down the escalator wanting to buy purses and shoes and, you know, Nordstrom stuff. And there's this kid, you know, holding his pad of paper. Hey, you want to play my game? But, you know, it was a blast. We'd go to bars, open up the game and just start playing. Go, what are you doing? Oh, sit down. And we always would do it where there's a retail outlet near there rather yes. than, you know, it's fun. Go buy it. It was like, no, right now, just go next door, spend your 30 bucks. So we were, we were, I mean, so much more. We just had so much fun promoting. You were hustling, but you, you were also paying attention to failure. And I, I, there's a lesson here. So you were at the bottom of that of that escalator and no one's buying anything ever. And you know, this thing is good. You just need to get them to engage and they won't because you're this 25-year-old kid trying to get them to buy an expensive board game. And then you had this realization that it wasn't a drawing game. It's a guessing game. T tell me changed, what that means. Changed everything. So they'd come down the escalator and I would throw the pencil at them and a pad of paper. And I go, hey, draw me a cat. Let me guess what it is. And they would look at me like, no. And they'd scurry. They wouldn't come down the escalator. They'd start running back up, back up the escalator. But I'd sell three games in the 12 hours. And I was getting, I was getting excited. But after you know a week of this crap, then the realization was it's not a drawing game. It's a guessing game. People love to guess, but they don't want to look silly drawing badly. So they'd come down the escalator and I'd hold up a picture of a cat. Like, what's this? And they go, it's a cat. I go, no. And they go, well, no, it's a cat. I go, no, come here and explain it to me. Oh, I can do that. They'd come over to the table. You know, I fibbed them a little bit. No matter what they said, the answer was going to be wrong. And so by the time they got to the table, I'd say, oh, well, maybe you could draw it better than me, blah, blah, blah. And I sucked them in. And then we started selling 12s and 16s in a day. And that was the huge turning point. You sold 8,600 in the first six months of Pictionary, mostly in Seattle, right? All in Seattle. We we didn't sell outside of Seattle. I wanted to control everything, marketing, distribution. It begins to expand a little bit beyond your control. The following year, 350,000. We had license, so we couldn't scale. Now, there's a VC and people investing on every street corner. Back then, there was nobody. You had to go to, literally right. have to go to a bank. Now, banks aren't going to invest in a game. So the only way for us to ride this wave was to license, which is giving a bigger company or another company the rights to manufacturing, distribution, marketing, and sales. And they pay us a royalty. I mean, it's very common these days. So we, we had to work in a royalty. So we had meetings to license so we could uh, go from 8,600, as you say, we licensed 30, uh, 350,000 our second year, which was a huge number. Huge, man. Three million year three. 
the thing about Pictionary and what we did was by getting the pencil in the people's hands, it's a great freaking game. Doesn't matter what you're selling. If it's not good or productive or the public doesn't love it, you can sell one. But selling two is more difficult. It's word of mouth. Now it's social media. Our social media was strictly. Somebody played it. They talked about it. They went, the other friends went out and bought it. And so it just caught on almost immediately because it was a fun game. And so that the 350 was all word of mouth as well. And then 3 million. Now you've got an install base of a little bit more than, you know, 8,600. And so the world just went crazy. World went crazy for Pictionary in our year three, 1988. And you're a young guy, man. So what, from 3 million up to 11 million, it's the number one selling game in the world. It goes international. Yeah. What's that like for a young guy who grew up scooping ice cream and working tables and dreaming one day of maybe having a pizza franchise in Spokane yeah. to then be on the front of business covers and the really changing the entire market of what what entertainment looked like. And this this was, for those of us who were actively engaged in games back in the mid and late 80s, this was a big deal. It, it was a big deal. Everybody talked about it, TV shows, you know, half the major TV shows on air were talking about it, were playing it. Uh, Johnny Carson back in the day, Leno, everybody. I mean, everybody was playing and talking about Pictionary. It was, it was pretty heady stuff. So how did that change you? How, how did it change you uh, during that time of success, man, as you're riding that wave? It, it, it depends who you ask. Um, <laughs> but it, I think what you alluded to, my Spokane upbringing and close family and friends, I didn't go crazy. I was prepared, as I say, for success. What happens to a lot of people, and this is kind of what I know now, I didn't know it at the time, of course, is that people, they prepare for failure almost. Okay, if, I, if it fails, I'll start another business. If this doesn't work, I'll try something else. But I, I'm going, now, wait a minute. This looks like it's going to work. How do I prepare for the failure, the success when the money comes in? Who am I going to be? What do I want to buy? And again, I'm 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 more literal now that I'm a little older looking back, but I kind of did that when I was then too, because I I didn't want to be a one-hit wonder, make all this money, and then have to go back to work for somebody else later. That was freedom to me, was everything. How do I keep my freedom and how do I remain robbed? And I did a pretty good job. There's moments, of course, that we can't right. talk about. Nobody gets out on skate. Nobody gets out on skate. Uh, but no, I, I I knew what I wanted in my life long term, and I stayed true to that for a long time. You sold 17 years into Mattel. I think by that point, Pictionary had sold almost 40 million. I know. Which I got to put it out though, because of licensing, we I'm putting two fingers up. Two employees. So the biggest lesson ever, 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 ever I got. It's not what you make. It's what you keep. Because of licensing, we made all this money in royalties, but we had no overhead. So instead of having this big, everybody wants a big company, and I'm going to be a captain of industry, and I'm going to have employees, and da, da, da. if we had done that, I wouldn't be sitting here. I would have spent all my money on the business, which you have to do, of course, reinvest. But super, super lucky, super lucky that we got that licensing deal. A moment ago, you, it seemed like you uh, had some regrets. You said, the, uh, you know, like Frank Sinatra, Frank Sinatra mistakes. I've made a few. I've made a few. So uh, 
any mis- looking back on those the first 17 years as your leading Pictionary, what's a mistake that you made that you wish you could have somehow sidestepped? Well, <laughs> the first one always comes to mind. There was a contract that we didn't, uh, uh, as a technical point, we, there was a contract we didn't love that we still signed and we regretted it for the entire length of Pictionary. One was in a personal level that I didn't listen to myself. I talked about intuition. And I got wrapped up into, like I said, nobody gets unscathed. I got wrapped into, up into being Mr. Pictioner. I got wrapped up into having the accolades and the ego, but it really wasn't me, but I bought into it. And then I started having these, 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 these conflicts within myself. And so instead of being Rob Angel, I didn't know who I was anymore. And so I started having some mental health issues. I started being depressed. I started, they used to call it moody. And I just didn't know how to deal with it because it wasn't all the support you can get these days. And so I'm kind of this lone wolf of my life sucks. Here I'm the the owner and the creator of the biggest board game in the world. And I thought my life sucked and it did in that moment. Um, So the, the short answer to your question is I would have understood more and and done more about who I was. I wasn't that guy. And I could have abated that a little bit. And I, t- I took a leave of absence. I took six months off to get my, my act together, get my head together, my act, get my head together. But it taught me a great lesson. So it was, it was, everything happens for a reason. Indeed, but the, the, the pain, whether it's anxiety or depression or suicide ideation or just the struggle in life is one that you went through. I and did. one I think that affects just about every one of our listeners and viewers. It, what it, were some things you did during that six months or you do even today to make sure that you remain healthy? Well, <laughs> I'm chuckling because nobody's totally healthy. I mean, I had an issue this morning. And I love my crap. I'll be perfectly honest with you in the audience. It's not like I'm this guru and I can tell you exactly how to live your freaking life. I still dive into that crap that is me that I want to stop. Just being totally honest that, that everybody has crap. Everybody, everybody, everybody. Everybody looks at you know, the, these people on television and Mr. Picture created this game, you know, you're this usually successful guy, however, physical or mental, doesn't matter. We all have crap that happens in our life. And so what I try to do physically is stop and breathe. It's so cliche, but it's so true. You know, I do work, you know, I do dispensa and I do meditation. I do, do all these other things, but most people, 99% of the people aren't going to do those things. So the right. things that we can do, you can do, the audience is super simple. Just stop for a couple of seconds, literally take some deep breaths, hold it in, slowly let it out three times. It's fact. It is science that it calms your nervous system. The other thing I do, not always well, is I remove myself from what's going on. I can't control what's happening to me in a lot of times. It just happens. Just does, right? Some big, some small. We're talking, you make a wrong turn in a street corner, right? Instead of going left, you go right, and all of a sudden you've added 48 minutes to your drive and you're pissed off, right? So so when you can remove yourself from the situation, if you're getting in an argument with your business partner or your mate or something else, instead of reacting, just go, you know, I'm going to go take a little minute 
And I, I call it, I put myself in timeout. I've done it forever. It's not the timeout when you're a kid. And well, I take that back. It's exactly similar, dude. Yes. Like the timeout, you will lock yourself in a room because there's no upside to the argument, to the fight. So yeah, removing myself and breathing for me are two huge things. And they're simple. What about movement, exercise? I, I kind of leave that one out, but but it's so much. Um, that's why I'm saying putting myself in timeout. Time out. It is so much easier to physically do something than it is to mentally. You can tell yourself 47 times, don't react, don't react, don't react. Well, sorry, unless you've done the work, you're going to react. And that's okay. That is perfectly okay. So exercise, getting rid of some of that energy, uh, that, that angst. Uh, again, walking, getting rid of the, it doesn't have to be dramatic. Right. If you don't work out, don't think, well, I don't work out. I can't do it. You can literally walk around the block. Anybody can do that. I do that all the time. I mean, my, you know, my girlfriend goes, where are you going? I don't know. I'll be back <laughs> in 20. I have no idea where I'm going. So yeah. So physical exertion, when you're trying to fix a problem, when you're trying to fix yourself, when you're trying to do something else, it's so much easier to live it in your physical body than your mental body. That was a little, a little woohoo, but it's so true. Practice your physical. In 2001, you finally sell out to Mattel mm -hmm. and this baby that you nurtured and loved and raised and watch grow beyond your wildest dreams ultimately become someone else's. What was that process like? And then what did you do with your life afterwards? <laughs> I look back at my life more post selling Pictionary than when I did Pictionary. And, you know, after 20 years of living with this product, it was time, yeah. physicality to it. it was time to sell. And so here I am, 43 years old, not young, not old, right? But 43 and, and going, all right, what's next? And so the, the, the natural idea is, well, I've got this money. I've got this reputation. I'm going to go invest my time, energy, money in creating something new because that's what everybody told me I should be doing. You're a creator, go create, you're, you're Rob Angel. Now I'm going out now, now, going back to the whole theme of being authentic as the word is, trusting myself, I'm going, you know, I think I wanna raise my kids. You know, I think I wanna do some nonprofit work. You know, I think that's gonna make me happy, not going back into the game business. I might as well have, have, have blown up something. People thought I was nuts. What do you, 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 that can't make you happy. Well, yes, yeah, in my job and my role in life, all our jobs and roles to be happy. And that's what I did. I, I, I didn't get back into business. I saved my money. I mean, admittedly, I made a bunch, but I, more importantly, I saved it. That's yeah. a whole separate issue. But I didn't have to go back to work. I was blessed. I got to do what I wanted, but detachment from Pictionary took a while because that was my identity on an emotional level. You know, it was the imposter syndrome came up for a long time. Well, you know, maybe it was my partner. Maybe something else happened. Maybe it wasn't really me, even though intellectually I knew without me, it doesn't happen. But emotionally, I went through that, that phase, a long phase of, I got to prove myself that didn't happen. That happened by accident. Eventually, I just had this conversation last night with a famous musician who, when he writes a song and it goes off into the world, I go... Do you still take ownership of that? And he said, no. 
once it's produced and well, I'm playing it for a little while, but it's, it, but he says, no, it's in the public domain. And eventually when I realized Pictionary belongs to the world, I was able to go, okay, I did my part. It was great. I loved every minute of it, but I can let it go. And that took time. Took a, that took a fair amount of time, but, but I'm very happy, blessed, grateful that I did it, but I am detached in a very good way, very positive way, by the way. Uh, and I'm happy what it does. The, the lives has influenced, the lives has changed, the joy it brought everybody. I still get to, I still get to enjoy that moment in my life. Mm. So I graduated St. Louis University with a degree in finance and a rock solid 2.8 GPA. Oh. Later this year, I have the honor of being the commencement speaker at St. Louis University, which is super mind blowing, truly super. And I have a role model in you to follow because you also had about a 2.8 GPA as you tripped your way forward at Western. And then I had the opportunity of watching you speak as a commencement speaker at that same university. So my question to you, what's it like for a guy who did not excel in college to then come back, look out with a cap and gown on your own head now with a little bit of success behind you and a little bit of joy within you and craft a message for kids who have anxiety and dreams and a whole life ahead of them. What's that buzz like for you? Dude. I lobbied for it. I that was a bucket list item for me. I wanted to stand on that stage, maybe from before I graduated from college, and then when my life unfolded the way it did, I really wanted to share my life, my insecurities, my graduating college, not having a clue what I was going to do, and so the emotion of being able to share that, and and just let them know. Nobody knows what's going to happen, and it's okay. Don't get yourself in knots about your future. You're you're 21, 22 years old. So to be able to share that, my journey, my message, my life with them, to me, was one of the highlights of my life. I loved it, every second of it. And every time I've heard you speak, whether live or virtually, they introduce you and they say, and, and he's most proud of these two kids, Sam and Ben. Uh, so yeah, you're saying the greatest thing in my life. And yet these two little kids that you helped love and raise and uh, train up clearly are, uh, they're going to be what defines you long after people stop playing Pictionary or stop remembering your name. These kids will carry forward that legacy. Absolutely. They are my legacy. That's what I say. They're my legacy. You know, I'm detached from Pictionary. It doesn't matter what I do, how they conduct themselves in their life and who they become is all that's important to me. And, and, and they can be anything, by the way, that's, that's not the issue, but you know, they're my, my joy, my pride, my love. And, you know, like I said, when I sold picture, what was the first thing I did? Stay home for my kids hmm. for me, but they got the benefit. And so did you, I, I realized the more I'm home with my kids, the more I tell myself I'm doing it for them, but my gosh, I'm getting an awful lot of joy from raising and loving and hanging and shooting baskets and playing board games and vacationing and just loving someone else. So here we go. We're almost the Live Inspired 7. It's our seven questions that wrap up every interview. So get ready for that. But before you and I sit down and uh, grab the game table, uh, first this question. For those right now who are sitting in the audience wondering, well, I'm glad this guy's had some success in his life. 
I'm glad this guy kind of figured it out, whether he figured it out or he got lucky and it ended up in his laugh. I haven't figured that out yet in mine. And what should I do to take the next right step forward? So for those of us listening right now and observing and watching and longing for more in their life, what, what encouragement would you give them? You kind of nailed it. Take the next step. It's, it's, we get, we, and I'm saying we, myself included, I've got ideas and projects and things I want to accomplish that I'm not. So it's, you have to take that first small, easy, simple step because we get vapor locked, as I call it. We get stuck in our own head. I didn't start picturing it for two and a half years, right? It was there, it was there, it was there. So uh, take that first step. And then on a personal note, I am the king to this day of beating myself up over what I'm not doing. Mm. This is such a common thing. It's like, I should be promoting my book. I should be on the speaking tour. I should be doing da, 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 da. And when I don't, I go, you're such an ass. Rob, come on. You're, you're you. You could do it. And when I don't, I beat myself up all the time. And that's really one of the main things I'm working on in my own personal life is to accept who I am and what I'm not. And, and when I do that, there's moments where I do it. And when I screw up, it's like, it's okay. And those moments are brilliant. So don't beat yourself up for what you're not doing. Just go, oh, I, I, I did take a first step today. Just embrace the small victories and build on those. Aardvark. Aardvark yourself. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The man who wrote on the word aardvark and created an empire because of it. Here come the seven questions that wrap up every interview. They're called the Live Inspired Seven. Let's roll. Question right. number one, what's been the most impactful or the most inspirational book you've ever read? The Four Agreements. Uh, I've read it too. Tell me about the Four Agreements. Oh, it's it's super simple. It's four simple agreements we make with ourselves and with humanity. And it, the book is super small, super simple, super easy, but it just is really concepts that resonated. So I read it every year and I've probably given 50 or hundred copies away. It's fabulous. What, it is a great book. What, what's one positive characteristic that you possessed as a little kid growing up in Spokane that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? <laughs> that I was smart. <laughs> I kind of played that dumb, you know, I, you know, I, I hid behind my humor that I wasn't smart. So I would have, uh, and I was. Hmm. If your home caught fire and your boys are out and your partner's out and the dogs and cats and birds, every living thing is out, but you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item that matters to you. What's the one thing you would grab? I would probably grab my journals because I haven't got them transcribed yet. And it's a history of me and my life and what I want to eventually want to share. The stuff doesn't matter. Even the computer, you can always do that. But just photos that you can find. So I, I, I think my life, and that would be the journals that I've written. I hope you grab those. I hope you transcribe those. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous Washington day and have a long conversation with anybody living or deceased, who would you like to be seated next to? Marcus Aurelius. The great Stoic philosopher, Roman emperor, I'm a big Stoic fan. One of the philosophies, not really one of the philosophies that I follow. Uh, and, and they teach, don't beat yourself up. And so I'm still a long way to go, by the way. Uh, but just, just who he was, 
the emperor of the greatest, you know, at that time, the greatest country in the world. And he was a, he was a philosopher. He was a military guy. He ran this country, yeah. but he was this massive philosopher about stoicism. And I'd love to pick his brain. What's the best advice Marcus or anybody else ever gave you? So the best advice you've ever received, Rob, is? Yeah, don't beat yourself up. Uh, be yourself. Be authentic. Be yourself. Be yourself. Be yourself. Because every time I wasn't, I would have depression. I would go into these other things. And I do live my life as much as I can mm. for that. Because, I mean, you, you could get great business advice, which I've got tons of great business advice. You're kidding me. From great people. However... If I'm not, and this is all me about uh, talking what I know, if I'm not comfortable with myself and happy in myself, and it's not going to happen every day, but when I am, I know I'm making the right decisions. I know I've got something to contribute. I know I'm going to make money. I know I'm going to influence people. So when I'm happy with myself, being authentic with myself, that's when great things happen. And I'm glad you brought that up. I'm curious, to what degree do you think when we try to be someone who we are not or pretend to be someone who we actually aren't, we create anxiety and then despair and then depression and then everything else that comes with that. How, how frequently do you think that is part of the cause? Oh, for me, for most of us, 90%. I mean, I, mean, I don't know what the number is, but a lot, it's a lot. Like, a lot. It's like, I want to be like the guy on TV. Well, you're not. So then all the time, energy, money you're putting into your yourself to be that guy and be like that guy, all of a sudden you're losing part of you. And all we have in the end is us. Mm. All I have to look in the mirror is me, you, everybody. And it's very woohoo. And it's very, come on, Rob, it's not that simple, but it is. Now I'm doing it's hard, but the concept of it is simple. If it, it, the anxiety that I suffered when I took six months off of picture, it's because I wasn't being true to myself. I wanted to be a creator, an inventor, marketing, sale. I wanted to be out there. Then I had to become this business guy because yeah. our game was so successful. And I it didn't mesh with who I wanted to be. And that's that's really one of the main reasons that I created rather than saying, guys, you guys handle business. Let me go do this. I just didn't didn't voice my wants and needs. And it would have landed really well but it didn't i didn't it was me for not saying it you may have already answered it, but here we come again what advice would you give yourself at age 20 what i would say for sure is to say no more often i mean i was saying yes to parties to things things i didn't want to do places i didn't want to go staying out later doing business deals i was doing all these things in my life where it really wasn't what I wanted to do. And I wasted so much time, energy, and money saying yes. What I knew, I didn't want to say yes. Mm. I still did a lot. Rob Angel, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like yours to read? He was joyous, giving, paternal, nurturing, and just really a fun guy to be around. Well, man, I want to thank you for not only being that guy, but creating space for the rest of us to be that person as well. It's impacted our family and apparently about 60 million other families around the world at this point. So it's an incredible success story. I love your humble heart. And I'm grateful you're figuring out who you actually are. I appreciate that. My friends, that is Rob Angel. My name is John O'Leary. And today is your day. Be a game changer and live inspired. 
Well, nearly every one of us has memories of playing Pictionary with friends or a family. And almost all of us can tell stories of how it brought out unexpected art or imagination, collaboration, or just fun around the game table. I'm so happy to share Rob Angel's story with you. And now you know the story behind the board game. Isn't that awesome? I love how Rob shared the lessons he gained from his earlier work experience. One of my favorite parts of the podcast, in fact, was listening to his resume lived out in real time. How scooping ice cream taught him humility. How selling vacuums taught him not to be pushy. That real estate taught him to follow his own dreams, not somebody else's. And franchising a pizza restaurant taught him to try new things. It turns out, and I think we all know this, but just as a reminder that all of our experiences, all of them, personally and professionally, good and bad, prepare us perfectly for the challenges that lie ahead to embrace them, to move through them, and to recognize that the best of the journey remains ahead. All of the experiences from the past are preparing us for this moment right now. That's a gift. My friends, speaking of gifts, if you enjoyed this conversation, you will love the one we had with my buddy Eric Wall. During the dot-com bust in the year 2000, Eric lost the financial fortress that he built for himself and the identity that he thought he had along with it. After redefining who he was and what real success looked like in action, Eric became a performance graffiti artist And then ultimately partnered with clients like, you may have heard of these guys, IBM, Microsoft, Disney, among many, many, many others. If you're looking to unearth great things lying dormant inside of you, check out this podcast with my buddy Eric Wall. You'll love it. You can find it at episode 80 on the Live Inspired podcast. And if you want to just find it on our website, that's a great idea. We'll have it in the show notes from today's episode. You can find that by visiting me right now at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash podcast. We'll have a link to Eric Wall, episode 80, right there. My friends, if you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you, do me a favor. A couple things. Number one, make sure that you are subscribed to the Live Inspired podcast. It ensures week after week that we are able to deliver these to wherever you are hanging out on that day. So subscribe wherever you pull down your podcast. Secondly, wherever you work, you worship, you work out, you hang out. Make sure that you are telling your friends that you tune into the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. And so should they. In a marketplace with so much cynicism and negativity and darkness, Bring a little bit of joy and creativity and life into a marketplace longing for it. Tell them about the Live Inspired Podcast. They'll be grateful you did. And so will I. So my friends, family, brothers and sisters, mom and dad, for this time. And until next time, my name is John O'Leary. Today is your day. What a gift. Live Inspired. You know that Keeley Companies is all about fostering the world-class culture through their incredible cultural pillars. Well, it was time to add a seventh cultural pillar, Keeley Green. Guided by the mission to raise the sustainability standards by which they design, build, operate, and live, Keeley Green is dedicated to using a holistic approach to leave a positive impact on our environment, create a future that is sustainable for generations to come, In the words of Rusty Keeley, we are just getting started. 
You can learn more about that just getting started mentality and all the work they do by visiting my friends at Keeley Companies online at Keeley Companies. 